So I want to uh, tonight take some of the different threads that have been spoken about in the course of the retreat and kind of weave them together um, into uh, a couple of different models, actually, uh, which also uh, fit together. Um, the the basic framework is the four Brahma Viharas, as Mark was speaking about last night. Uh, Brahma, once again, meaning celestial or supreme, divine. Um, the translation I've heard for it that I like the most is the word best. Vihara, meaning dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. And like any home, we may not be there all the time, certainly, but it should be the place where we feel most ourselves, most at ease, most comfortable, because we're home. So the first of these, of course, is metta itself, or loving kindness. And there are many, many ways one could um, sense how... uh, we can create the conditions for metta to flourish, to come forth, to to be cultivated, to emerge. One way is actually insight, to see more clearly, to see things more as they actually are, um, which means seeing into the nature of change, how much all of us and all of life is changing all of the time, to see into the nature of interconnection, that no one and nothing actually stands apart or cut off. However alone we might feel, our lives are actually part of a much greater fabric of life. So an exercise I often um, like to do, sitting in front of a room full of people, is, is to have you all for a few moments, just consider all those who are in some way, have some way affected you so that you're here tonight. You know, all those people who maybe gave you a book or read you a poem or told you about their meditation experience. And just reflect for a few moments on these beings. And I like to include, in a way, those um, difficult people who uh, have challenged us because the need to be free of their domination of our mental space is also a part of what brings people to an experience like this. And all those beings who made the clothing that we're wearing or were involved in the food that we've eaten today, the creatures, the people, the the farmers and the people who've transported the food and you know it's many, many layers of life in any moment of time. And one thing I really like about that understanding is that um, you know, it's not it's not just spiritual um, perspectives 
that bring us to this, you know, environmental awareness brings us to this. Clarity in many ways about, about the world brings us to this, this understanding of interconnection. And so from that point of view, it's not that we like everybody, and it's not that we approve of everybody, but we see that in fact we're actually connected. You know, so the uh, the way I often describe it is my uh, friend Bob Thurman has um, an image he uses uh, quite a lot, and, and I use it, I think, even more than he does, having taken it from him, um, which is imagine you're on a subway, and these Martians come, and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are there are going to be together forever. <laughs> he says, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you feed them. Somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you necessarily think, oh, what a terrific person, I'm so glad, but because you're there forever together. We need to respond to one another. We need to take care of one another. Because this is the truth, actually. It's not so far-fetched. And so that's kind of the nature of, it's like the, you know, what I described earlier is like the worldview, the vision of metta, the sensibility of metta. It's not necessarily emotional, but it's like a very deep knowing that we're in this together, actually. The time when we could sort of parse out life and think, well, what happens over there is going to stay over there. And that time's gone. You know, it was never true, but it was an illusion that was easier to maintain. Um, and now it's not so easy to uphold. So that's very much a meta born of wisdom. Just seeing, oh yeah, this is in the, in the nature of things. That the constructs of self and other and us and them are really constructs that we have manufactured in some way and that we maintain, you know, much to our, our detriment and the detriment of, of the world. So the more we see clearly, without any contrivance, you know, there's nothing artificial about it. There's just a kind of responsiveness that comes. And then, of course, metta is born out of really being willing to use our attention in different ways. It means effort, but not straining effort. It needs to be very relaxed and open effort. I think of it as a kind of adventure. Um, I have a friend who sat this retreat a few years ago, and uh, I gave a talk um, on kindness, um, which involved things about ethics and things like that. And at the end of the retreat, my friend, who's a kind of, um, well, she prides herself on being an iconoclast and marching to the beat of her own drummer and being radical and um, things like that. She came up to me and she said, I finally got it. If you really want to be radical, be kind. You know, if you really want to go against conventional understanding, be caring, you know, and it is a radical act. It means like, okay, all these years, however long it's been, I've been in a kind of rut. It's so easy, it's so familiar to 
look right through that neutral person, you know, and not consider them. It's so easy to only think of ourselves in a negative. There's nothing easier. That's why it takes some effort. But it's like a very bright effort. Um, you know, so my very favorite thing to say about loving kindness practice is, what happens? I think that's sort of the spirit we undertake it in. Like, what happens? What happens when I look for the good? You know, what happens when I pay attention more fully? What happens when I'm in conversation with somebody, a kind of person that I've already categorized, you know, and like filed away, and I'm willing to not be bound to those preconceptions or prior ideas and really listen? You know, sometimes there's some very interesting surprises. So it's fun, you know, to... um, be willing to use our attention in these different ways, to look for the good, to, um, to notice, to be more wholehearted, uh, not to so rigidly categorize others and things like that. And that's really the, the basis of loving-kindness practice. So metta, um, just to review, the far enemy is aversion, which is anger and fear. The near enemy is attachment, which is not the same, of course, as metta, as the freely given gift. There's a holding, there's maybe a demand, there's um, some kind of pressure, there can be impatience, Um, there's frustration, like where's the return, you know, and there are a lot of other things that come up with the the force field of attachment that can look like metta, but it's really, it's very, very different. So we have the far enemy, we have the near enemy, and then what is called the proximate cause. Proximate cause of one of these states of the Brahmaviharas is, um, you could say it's like the likeliest platform for the quality to arise. It's not the only condition by any means, but if we put that condition in place, then um, the quality of the Brahma Vihara can uh, more easily come forth. So the proximate cause for loving kindness to be able to arise is actually twofold. One is seeing the good in someone, whether it's ourselves or someone else. And certainly this takes effort, doesn't it, sometimes? You know, um, it's so easy just to go over and over and over and over uh, the problem. So you actually, like, shift, (laughs) you know, and say, okay, what happens when I look for the good? And this isn't meant to be, you know, like delusion, like trying to pretend there's only good or anything like that. Um, But it's like an experiment in being radical. Okay, what happens? And sometimes it will not, it's just not real, you know, there's no way we're actually going to be able to um, evoke that sense of something good, whether we're looking at ourselves in a really bad day or it's somebody else. Um, And then there's another reflection that we do, which is based on this Buddhist teaching that all beings everywhere want to be happy, that really we share that We get confused, we get misguided, we get overcome. All kinds of things happen, but we really do just want to be happy, and that's okay. So that becomes the template for the practice of metta. 
And then we have compassion, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering. The far enemy is cruelty, where there is such a sense of otherness. You know, we, um, we don't have that kind of resonance with somebody's pain or difficulty. We don't have that moment of thinking, oh, how would that feel if it were me? Um, and so in that creation of the other, it's really possible to do anything. And so you could see how it's the, the clear opposite of, of the state of compassion. And interestingly, while you know, certainly that is um, such a grievous state on all sides, um, the near enemy is considered uh, in many ways... Um, an equally daunting challenge in a very different fashion. The near enemy of compassion is a state that's quite hard to translate. I've seen it translated in many different ways. Sometimes it's pity, sometimes it's grief, sometimes it's sorrow. It doesn't mean grief in the Western psychological sense of grief. It means like being overcome by suffering, you know, being sort of shattered by the suffering that we see so that there's nothing in us that can kind of want to go forward and either be of help or even be present, you know, it's just like, this is too much. Um, we get exhausted, we get depleted, we get, uh, it's just too much. You know, I often, I use the example of this time when uh, my friend Joseph and I went to Russia to teach, which was then the Soviet Union, and uh, actually we left from here and uh, somebody in the hallway came up to me and said, well, you know, it's illegal to teach meditation in the Soviet Union. And I had a friend who went to Cuba and got arrested for doing just that. So you be careful. And I thought, well, there's a blessing, you know. <laughs> like, bye. <laughs> um, so uh, we were careful. We went as part of a tour group, but we never went and saw anything. Um, we'd kind of like peel off and uh, go off to people's living rooms and um, with a translator. And, and we would teach, and I was talking a lot about compassion. And um, I would notice that whenever I would use the word, there was kind of this really funny feeling in the room. So I finally sat down with the translator, and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And they said, oh, you know, it's the state where you're just like broken and overcome, and it's like, torturous and and they said it's like someone has taken a giant stake and driven it through your heart and I thought well no wonder there's a really funny feeling in the room you know but it's easy actually to be confused about you know compassion actually has a kind of wholeness to it um, even though it is born of opening to the truth of suffering um it has a quality of wholeness and um, fullness of being. Uh, my favorite example here, too, is the Dalai Lama. Um, some of you may have been there some years ago now uh, when he spoke in Central Park. Um, he gave a, a free public talk in Central Park with, like, a gazillion people. <laughs> um, the unofficial... Uh, estimates 
uh, from security and so on were like 250,000 people. And that's what it looked like, you know, just being there, just everywhere the eye could land. There were people, you know, who'd come to hear him speak. And we were all sitting there um, in a very unusual kind of quiet, in a way, given how many people there were. And when he, he finally started speaking, he began with a phrase I found quite startling when he said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power, temporal power when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to, you know, all these years try to keep a community in exile intact. I've had to hear all these years about the terrible suffering going on inside of Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) You know, and that's sort of what one sees in him, you know. It's like he doesn't seem really morose and overcome. He said, I'm pretty happy. (laughs) Um, Even though it hasn't been such an easy life, he said, because of the force of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with everyone. And so it's a very powerful exploration it was amazing even that day, you know, because sitting there in the midst of like 250,000 or so people, I was thinking, you know, a whole bunch of us could probably have said it hasn't been such an easy life. And maybe not that many of us would have then gone on to say, but I'm pretty happy. You know, so we explore that. It's not like being defeated, you know, and um, kind of hopeless and all those things that can so easily come. It's not, you know, it's not like an unthinkable state to feel like, you know, this giant stake has just been driven through your heart. But even though it is easy to go there, we can build the strength and the resiliency that is actually compassion and the the sense of such powerful connection in it so that we're not so overcome. So the far enemy of compassion is cruelty, the near enemy um, is something, <laughs> um, we'll call it sorrow or, I don't know, shatteredness, something like that. Um, and the proxima cause is being able to see suffering. And this is also important. You know, we don't usually see suffering as suffering. You know, as I've talked about earlier here, you know, we don't usually see our own suffering as suffering. We see it as bad or wrong or something like that. We look at someone else's actions. We don't usually see it as suffering. You know, and so that um, ability to see suffering as suffering becomes the proximate cause of the arising of compassion. Then there's sympathetic joy, which is so delightful and can be so difficult to do. Um, It always struck me as so interesting, you know, because some people just seem to have that quality so naturally. You know, they hear about, you know, something really good happens for you, and they hear about it, and they're so filled with happiness, and it feels so delightful. But for most of us, it's a practice. It really is. Um, Because the far enemy, of course, is envy or jealousy, and it's not uncommon. The way Mark, you know, was describing, we can feel like, you know, it's the funniest feeling, really, because it's so illogical it's so unrealistic but it's very prevalent you know it's almost like we feel the 
the honor or the accolade or the um the praise or you know whatever good thing it is was like floating around in the air and it would have landed on me but for the fact that it landed on you and if it had not landed on you it definitely absolutely certainly would have landed on me which becomes the basis for feeling really envious and jealous you know like oh no you got it i deserved it and you got it and i would have gotten it except for you you know so there's a lot of that going around and and it's a very challenging practice you know because it goes right to the heart of looking at our sense of aloneness and competition and happiness and you know connection and all of that and, and yet it's so liberating um you know in all the the ways that mark described the um, near enemy of sympathetic joy. Um, I've also heard this translated in different ways. It um, sometimes it's translated as kind of um, frivolity or like a superficial happiness, you know, not because we're looking at someone else's state and being delighted for them, but just kind of giddiness. Um, um, for me, a more meaningful translation is a sense of comparison where we are continually looking at someone else's status in order to feel out our own, but not for the sake of being happy for them, but just to endlessly compare. And it's interesting, too, in the Buddhist psychology, the state of comparison um, is considered unskillful or or painful um, no matter what conclusion we draw. You know, it's like you could compare yourself to somebody and decide you were better than they are or worse than they are or equal to them. And whatever conclusion you've come to, it's the act of comparing. It's like always looking, always wondering, always, you know, it's, it's sort of this endless, ceaseless, restless um, process. It's like we, we joke here too sometimes, like, you know, it's really impossible to tell what someone else is going through in an intensive retreat, you know, when we're silent, because, you know, we're silent. <laughs> and, um, and so we use any mechanism we can to try to compare, you know. So um, it could be like you come into the meditation hall and you sit down, and right in the middle of the sitting, the person sitting next to you um, you know, like throws off their shawl and moves, they shift posture, and you think, oh, good. You know, I'm a better meditator than they are <laughs> because I'm sitting still, and, and you know, and, and they've had to move in the middle of the sitting. And then you think, wait a minute. You know, they were actually in here when I came in here. You know, maybe they sat through the sitting, through the walking, and halfway through this next sitting, they're a much better meditator than I am. You know, I'm no good, and... You know, it's just endless, endless, endless. So it can have some of the same qualities or characteristics of sympathetic joy, but it's really very different. The uh, proximate cause of sympathetic joy is seeing happiness. It means, of course, seeing our own happiness, because if we are fixated on the idea that we have nothing and they have everything... um, it's not going to be even possible to, you know, to have that, that sense of generosity, which is sympathetic joy. 
So it's seeing happiness, seeing our own, seeing others. It becomes the, the bridge for, for taking delight in their happiness. And then comes the last of the Brahmaviharas, which is equanimity. Equanimity is not, I find, an easy state to understand. Um, maybe it's the word, I don't know. Um, I think of equanimity as the articulation of wisdom. This is um, the fruit of insight, of wisdom, of seeing clearly. It's balance. It's the kind of balance that comes not from just being placid or kind of calm or tranquil, but from understanding. You know, the ways that um, we try to control what actually can't be controlled. And then comes that moment, I'm not in charge. I can't. I can't make this go a certain way. That wisdom, that insight, doesn't have to lead to apathy or resignation or pulling back or withdrawing. It can be real balance. Where we are heartful, we're um, intent, we're really present, but with wisdom. To say, well, yeah, I actually can't make you do this, 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 and this. Even though I gave you the list, you know. It may not be just so. The seasons, they come and go. Life happens. The Buddha talked about it in terms of what he called the eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. It's pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. And he said, there is no one who experiences only pleasure and no pain. It's not our fault. It's not, you know... um, that something is aberrant. It's in the nature of things. This is how things actually are. It's almost like having a really big, wide view of life. And even when we can't get a sense of the bigger picture, we know there is one. So everything opens. It's very different than having um, that sense of insistence and attachment and demand you know, or the constant judgment, like, this is wrong, I shouldn't have this. I can remember when I was um, first practicing, of course, it was, it was very, very, very painful. But a little later, when, um, as I was sitting, you know, in India, things, my experience was, was, was very pleasant. And I would have these sittings where I would just have this wonderful feeling, like I was floating in the air and um, no white light, but nice stuff. And, you know, it was really, it was so lovely. And then I would start thinking, oh, isn't it going to be wonderful spending the entire rest of my life in just this state? And, and, you know, as I said, I wasn't really planning on coming back here, but I thought, well, maybe in 10 years, you know, I'll go back to visit. And I would just sort of see myself floating down the streets of New York you know, wearing my white sari with a beatific smile. And, and maybe 20 minutes later or something like that, you know, my back would start hurting or my knees would start hurting or, you know, I'd, I'd be thinking about something kind of restlessly or with agitation and it would be gone. And every time I would think, oh, what did I do to ruin it? You know, did I breathe too hard? 
Did I sit up too straight? Was I too slumped over? What was it? But really, it didn't go away because I did something to ruin it. It went away because everything goes away. It's in the nature of life. It's like life itself is change. We go up, we go down. It's inevitable, it's inescapable. And we can be with it not with hostility and resentment or a kind of never-ending effort to seize control somehow over it. We don't have to withdraw from uh, all the experiences of life, but it's different when we have wisdom. We're not so utterly distraught and self-blaming when things do not go our way. We're not so beguiled and fooled by a seeming permanence when things do go our way. Not too long ago, last spring, I guess, I went um, to Maui to teach. Poor me, right? Um, It's too bad it wasn't February, (laughs) but uh, it was the spring. And I was going to teach a retreat um, with my old friend Ramdas, who's living there now, and uh, Krishnadas, who's also an old friend. Um, and I was coming from the East Coast, and, and Krishnadas said to me, you know, what you should really do is take a plane to San Francisco, uh, get off in San Francisco, spend the night in the airport hotel, get on another plane the next day and go to Maui, because it's just it's way too much you know, to go in one trip. So um, I thought about that, and I brought it up with my travel agent. He said, no, you know, don't do that. He said, you know, by the time you get your luggage, you know, into the whole thing, he said, I have like the perfect flight for you. You know, you go to San Francisco, you'll have a two-hour layover, you'll get on the next plane, you'll, you know, it'll be fantastic. So I said, okay. <laughs> so the day came, I got on the plane, two hours in San Francisco turned into six and a half hours in San Francisco. The whole trip took me like 17 hours. I was utterly exhausted. I thought I could have gotten to India. You know, by the time I got here, I was unbelievably tired. I got really sick, you know, and it was like... So I saw Krishnadas a few days after I got to Maui, and I said, I was so stupid. You know, I just should have listened to you. You know, I was just so stupid. And he said, no, I was so stupid. He said, I got to the airport hotel, and I couldn't sleep. By the time, you know... (laughs) I got to sleep. I had like an hour's worth of sleep, and then I had to get up and catch the next flight. He said, I should never have traveled that way. (laughs) You know, so aside from the sort of pragmatic fact that it's clearly not that easy to get to Maui um, from the East Coast, we can blame ourselves for anything, actually. Every choice, you know, can seem like a mistake even though there was no, I mean, there's no reason to actually see it that way. And any mistake can lead to a spiral of self-blame. Or not. You know, we can understand we go up and we go down. We make choices, sometimes they work out, sometimes things are quite unforeseen. We do the best we can. And the the force of equanimity based on wisdom brings us a measure of peace so that we're not so lost in all that uh, reactiveness and holding on, pushing away, and 
you know, blaming and, and being so kind of irritated at how things actually are. It gives us a sense of spaciousness, really tremendous spaciousness. It takes us out of the tyranny of time. You know, um, there are so many times in which we try to make a difference. We try to help somebody. We're responding with compassion or something like that. And we do not get an immediate result. And so, do we feel demoralized? Or can we have a sense of a bigger picture? Because so often what is happening is that we're really just planting seeds. And we don't know exactly when and how they will bear fruit. But our work is to plant the seed. And then we need to have a kind of letting go. Because what else could we do based on wisdom? Letting go doesn't mean not caring, but it's getting in harmony with how things actually are. Joseph um, tells this story sometimes about being, a, I think he was about nine years old, when he planted his first and I think his only garden ever. And he said he'd get so um, excited when the little green fluffy stuff would be coming up on top of the carrot that he'd like pull it up to help it grow faster. (laughs) So he didn't have much of a crop really, you know. (laughs) But we can be like that, you know. It's like things take time. Nature takes its course. That's how things, that's how life actually is. And yet, we do everything we can, you know, to try to make a difference. But it can be held in, in this really vast sense, which is true. It's not like, you know, just comforting. It's not something we take on for the sake of solace. It's actually the truth of things, isn't it, in the bigger picture. One thing leads to the next. Our actions ripple out. We don't know how... Um, going through this door will quite affect, you know, all the rest. But we do, you know, what we can do. To have a sense of equanimity means to be at peace. Because life is as it is. And I especially love, you know, the um, in the uh, vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, this sense of praise and blame, because it's, um, it points so clearly to us of how we're not in control and how if we have a kind of insistence on things being just one way, we're lost. You know, and one of the reasons I think I like praise and blame so much is that it's the very same action that we do which can bring so much praise or so much blame from others. I was recently telling um, somebody about um, when I wrote one of my books, this book Faith, um, which was a very intense book for me to write. Um, It came out, and I was in San Francisco teaching, and it um there was a review of it in a like a quite large paper it was the largest review it got um 
And I was in the San Francisco airport. Um, I guess it was the day that the review came out. And uh, the person who's going to pick me up here in Boston and bring me back here um, left a message on my uh, cell phone which said something like, oh, I'm, I'm bringing along a copy of the review. And it's really, it's a very positive review, except for a few disparaging remarks. <laughs> so then I had like six and a half hours on the airplane <laughs> to think, what disparaging remarks were those, you know? Like the whole first part of the sentence, that it was like really very positive. It was like gone, you know? Um, so of course I had no way of knowing, you know, in that tube. So I, you know, I landed... Um, Boston and met my friend and he gave me the review and uh, it was really quite amazing because the reviewer um, took great exception to the subtitle of the book which was it was the only part of the book that didn't come from me and probably three quarters and all the disparaging remarks in the review were about the subtitle. It was basically a review of the subtitle of the book, which, <laughs> which I had not created. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a moment in time, right? <laughs> you know, what does that mean? There's praise and there's blame, you know. You do something in the most heartful way you can with the greatest integrity you can. Somebody has some reaction to it. <laughs> You know, someone else has another. Life is always like that. And it doesn't mean we don't care. You know, that's another reason I like um, this for an illustration. It's not that in equanimity we don't care. Of course we care. But how much do we care? Is our whole sense of who we are all wrapped up in a reaction we could never actually determine? Or can we have that understanding that, yeah, that's how things are? Even in, you know, whatever um, other kind of response we might have. I mean, of course we care. But will there ever come a time that we will write the perfect book with the perfect subtitle (laughs) so that every single human being on the planet who reads it has a uniform reaction Unlikely. It's like the seasons. Really, all these vicissitudes constantly coming and going and changing. If we can have that perspective, then we can have some equanimity. Um, The specific way, I mean, we can develop, and we do develop equanimity as a large... um, measure as a a fruit of more mindfulness because mindfulness means being with our experience without adding grasping aversion or delusion without holding on pushing away or or getting like confused or deluded about it and so there's a measure of balance right there and balance is is everything in some ways in in the teachings because it's really believed that out of balance, you know, as we've talked about before, all good things will emerge. So we don't practice like trying to hold on to wisdom or uh, manufacture love or something like that. We practice to come into greater and greater balance. 
And then out of that balance, it will, it will happen. You know, so that's really, that's really our work. So the more mindful we are, the more equanimity we will have. It's right, um, it's embedded in the quality. And there's also the equanimity, which is the Brahma Vihara. Um, so there's loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Now, when I first was in Burma in 1985, which is where I first practiced the Brahma Viharas uh, intensively in a structured way, I couldn't quite figure out what equanimity was doing there. You know, I could feel the emotional um, tone of the first three. And then equanimity seemed like it would be a little flat, you know. Um, but in the actual practice of it, it was... It was just beautiful, you know, to feel that kind of release. Um, to realize that in many ways equanimity is the secret ingredient in the other three because it's wisdom. You know, it said that equanimity, that kind of balance of mind, um, endows loving kindness with patience. You know, because otherwise we are a little bit like Joseph growing those carrots. It's like, okay, get better, you know. Be happy. Um, but what does it mean to really have a freely given gift? You know, there's a, there's a kind of balance in there. And it's said that um, equanimity will endow compassion with courage and keep it from falling into that near enemy. Of, of being overcome by pain. Because so much of the time, it's so ironic, you know, because when we're lost in that state of the, the near enemy of uh, compassion, it's like, it's our own um, discomfort, our own guilt, our own uh, bad feeling, basically, that often takes center stage. You know, and so in some strange way, it's a kind of another um, egoic construction right there. But what would it be like if we weren't, we didn't have that sneaky thing of feeling responsible for fixing everything? If uh, we didn't feel that kind of devastation when we looked at suffering that is born of um, feeling like we have to make it better in some kind of strategic way, and then feeling just kind of helpless, is different. It's not that we don't care, but there's balance, there are boundaries, there's clarity. It's, it's very poignant. You know, it's not like a happy-go-lucky state, um, like the Dalai Lama's happiness is not happy-go-lucky. But it's, it's got a kind of sustenance, you know, that's different. I once had a friend who um, was going through a, a very, very uh, difficult, painful time psychologically, emotionally, and I was with one of my Tibetan teachers, um, and I was uh, kind of complaining. Uh, and I said to this teacher, the young teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, I said, you know, I don't think it's fair. Like, why don't we get one person where you know, we can kind of look at them and just say, poof, your suffering's gone. You know, I don't think one is too much to ask. And, and of course, you know, 
that's a problem too. Like, which one? You know, and like, <laughs> when do you do it? You don't want to do it too soon. You don't want to do it too late. You know, but even apart from all that, you know, I, I was sort of just in that state. And so I can remember she just laughed, you know, and he said, that's why we call it samsara. You know, samsara is the word for this world of birth and death, change out of our control. That's why we call it samsara. We don't get one. And yet, we do everything we can, you know, to try to be there, to be present, perhaps to help effectively if we possibly can. And if we can't, then at least to be there. But we don't get one, even. And if that is too bitter a truth, we just pull away. You know, our own helplessness um, is the most predominant feeling, and we just leave. So, how do we stay and also flourish and be fulfilled and be okay? It's through the power of equanimity, which is based on on that kind of insight. Um, There's a a beautiful image um, that I hold for these joinings of states, you know, the ways that equanimity will support the other Brahmaviharas. It also um, supports sympathetic joy, they say, because sympathetic joy um, can be hard. You know, mostly we're not cruel people in most instances. You know, it's because we don't see someone's behavior as suffering that we don't feel that resonance of compassion But to feel sympathetic joy, to really feel delight for them, um, means like a a great transformation of our sense of aloneness and withholding and so on. And so we need a kind of balance. We need equanimity to remind us that there's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute in this world. Like We don't have to sit there and wait for somebody's happiness to turn because we know life turns life turns on a dime you know we get one phone call it's a different life and so do we really resent this person having some measure of joy probably not when we remember the bigger picture you know so uh, equanimity really not only keeps the Brahmaviharas from falling into their near enemy, it also opens them, makes them boundless, you know, much further than our uh, perhaps select few that we can feel, say, sympathetic joy for. It really opens that field. So the image is from another Tibetan teacher of mine um, uh, who was a a lama named Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. Um, And uh, many years ago, I went with some friends and him to to visit uh, another friend's house. And the friend whose house we were visiting um, uh, was a vet, a veterinarian. And he had all kinds of animals all over the place. And he had this dove who was just sort of flying around. So the dove came and... Uh, landed on my teacher's hand, Kempo's hand. And uh, somebody had a camera and took a photo. And it's such a beautiful photo. He's like holding this dove. He's cradling it. 
And, and there's so much like tenderness and gentleness and regard in that moment. And then in the next moment, the dove flies away and Kempa goes, whoo. He's like releasing it, like let it go, um, which someone also got a shot of. So there's this beautiful set of photos um, that I have, you know, of these two moments. And I think of it as uh, like that moment of compassion and connection and then that beautiful release of equanimity, like let it go. It's going to go. It's gone, actually, you know. And we can have our own delight in, in that kind of liberation. So um, this is really the framework in which we do the practice, is that they all need to come together, and they do. And then they inform our action. You know, we, you know as I've talked about before, our field of um, intention gets transformed through the practice of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. And the way we respond to the immediate result of our action gets transformed by equanimity. We come from the best place we possibly can come from um, in what we do or what we say. We act with as much skillfulness as we can in what we do or what we say. And then there needs to be a measure of equanimity because we don't know when or how this action will will be received. Those first two are um, important to distinguish, the intention from the skillfulness. Um, the intention is the motivation or the place we are coming from. The skillfulness is almost like it's our discernment, our understanding, Sometimes I describe it as our best guess of what's the most appropriate action to do in a particular situation. And the reason it's important to to have a distinction between those two is to reinforce the understanding that we could be coming genuinely, truly, from a very kind, uh, compassionate place. And our sense, our best sense of the most appropriate thing to do in any given situation could be pretty fierce. You know, it could be kind of intense. You know, sometimes people think, well, if I were to develop, and they say, if I were to develop loving kindness, I would be sort of consigned to this little narrow band of action, like mostly just sort of smiling, you know. (laughs) Um, But it's not like that, you know. What we decide to do in any given moment is based on a lot of factors, you know. It's like a bigger kind of mindfulness or our best sense of what's most appropriate in this context. You know, so we have the intention, we have the skillfulness, and then we have the immediate result. Maybe I give you something, you don't praise it, you know. Uh, Maybe you don't thank me. That doesn't mean it was a worthless gift. You know, so the whole um, development of equanimity is also an invitation to return our sense of integrity to being in touch with our intention and the skillfulness of our action and not to be so dependent on, you know, these constantly shifting reactions um, that come from, you know, forces we can never control. And so... 
taken together, these four Brahma Viharas become the, the basis for um, how we act and you know, how we live in every day. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you.